Welcome, welcome to Hydrant Church. If you are new with us today or last week, my name is Tim, and I'm the lead pastor here, and I would love to get to meet you uh, afterwards in the cafe. If you're new, we're just glad you're here. We're glad all of you are here. It's, uh, it's an honor to worship with you this morning. We know there's so many different places you could be, different things you could be doing today, and we don't take it for granted that you're here. In two weeks, we have a very special Sunday here at Hydrant Church. It's called Vision Next. Vision Next Sunday is when we take a Sunday to stop and celebrate everything that God has done in the last year. We recognize and we have volunteer awards and we stop in the middle and say thank you to everyone in some special way. There have been years that that's been a giant cupcake, other years hamburgers and hot dogs, it's been cotton candy and any number of different things. So we have a surprise for you planned for that Sunday right in the middle of worship. We'll celebrate all that God has done and we'll talk about where he's taking us next. What do we believe he's asking us to do together? And over the last several months, our leaders, our, our elders, our staff have been praying about this and really have this deep unity and sense of purpose for what we believe God is calling us to be a part of and challenging us to invest in together in the next year. And so we really encourage you to plan to be a part of that day, that first Sunday in February. It's in a couple of weeks. We're excited about it. It's going to be a great day. It's always lots of fun. And so we look forward to celebrating that with you. So we're going to pray and then we'll jump into today's message. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, those who have been a part of this journey, um, whether that is a week or a year or five years, each one is so significant, so important in this in this thing that you're doing together called Hydrant. And we're just we're grateful. We're grateful to be together. We're grateful to to be able to say that in our Father's house there's a place for me. No matter my story, no matter my background, no matter. You know, even no matter what are my beliefs, any of that, it's, it comes down to who you say we are and that we can have a place in your house. And so we, we lean into your presence today and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us and invite us to be able to look and see what drives and motivates us that maybe no one else sees. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been in this series called Obscurity. It's like the least wonderful thing to talk about at the beginning of the year. Usually at the beginning of the year, you want to like have some kind of pump up reminder. You can do it. You can make it. Take on that resolution. Take on the world. You've got it. And, and we've kind of taken this opposite approach to say, there's a lot going to happen in this year that we can't even begin to imagine. There is so much uncertainty and mystery in this year that we're going to need strength that we can't muster in and of ourselves. So where is it that we discover that strength? How is it that God grows strength in us? What are the secrets of the strength that Jesus seemed to exhibit in his life? And we've used this kind of this iceberg as, a, as an illustration, a metaphor to talk about where strength is built and where it really comes from. When we notice an iceberg that only really 10% of it is seen, is in the public eye, is visible at all. And 90% is below the surface, is, is hidden. And it's that 90% that makes the iceberg indestructible. And we believe and we see in Scripture and really in the example of Jesus' life that our lives work much the same way. 
that the, that the equation for an indestructible life is 90% hidden and 10% in the public eye. Most of us would wish it was the other way around. We don't like seasons of obscurity, hiddenness, being unknown or unnoticed or undervalued. Those are not fun seasons. Being hidden, being, being, being in a new town or a new place and no one knowing your name or your birthday or anything about you. Or, or maybe applying for that promotion and not getting it. Or, or being at a, at a company that just doesn't value or see the gifts that you have to bring. Or graduating from college and stepping out into the real world with this great confidence of everything you've learned. And they look at you and say, well, you don't know anything yet. Give it 10 years. And we think, but I do. Give me a chance. And we get stuck in these seasons that are hidden or obscure, anonymous. And we wonder, do they really matter? And what we're, we're right at the heart of this series is this belief, this conviction that it's in those seasons that God grows strength in us that can't grow any other time. That he puts in each of us these seeds of strength, but they only really grow when they're hidden. Like any other seed, it has to be planted in the depth and the darkness of the soil, unseen, unwatched, unnoticed, and it takes time, and eventually something grows. We want it to grow right now, really yesterday, certainly don't want to have to go through a season of obscurity or hiddenness, but we look at Jesus' life, and we, we often will say, oh, I want to be like Jesus. That's a Christian, good churchy thing to say, I want to be like Jesus. You know what we really mean is like, I really want those three years, you know, when everybody liked him and was following him, he was an important person and he did miracles and taught things, was a great leader. I mean, I don't want the last week. That sounds pretty horrible, false trials, being betrayed by your buddies, being hung on a cross. I don't want any of that. And, and that first 30 years, I don't want that really either, right? 30 years when nobody knew his name. He was born... And, and some shepherds came and saw him, and then eight days later, he shows up in the temple after some hidden days, right? And then there's hidden months, and two years later, some, some wise men from the east show up, and then it's, it's more hidden years, almost a decade before he shows up in the temple, and then it's hidden decades before he steps out and begins to teach it all. And everybody thought he was crazy for wanting to teach. Everybody who knew him never saw a thing in him. Complete anonymity, obscurity, knowing everything that was in him. Knowing his calling, knowing what he was here to do and be a part of in, the, in God's name and God's kingdom, and yet not being able to do any of it. And we, we, I believe that there's this episode that hinges the three years and the 30 years. And that if we'll look at that episode that's in the middle, we can see what was growing in Jesus during those 30 years. See, sometimes we think our big moments prepare us for the future. But really, it's the obscure moments that prepare us for the big moments. The big moments just reveal what's already in us, right? The big moments, the opportunities that come, they reveal what's already in us. Temptation reveals what's already in us. And it's already in Jesus when he steps out of Galilee that gives him a strength that we would love to have that made those three years possible.
and even that last week. So it begins in Matthew chapter 3. He leaves Galilee and he heads toward the Jordan River. And there he runs into his cousin John, who's baptizing people. He's taking people, shoving them under the water and lifting them up and saying, okay, now go follow Jesus. Well, really saying follow God. Do the right thing. Stop doing the crazy stuff, whatever it is. Like, you're now clean, new beginning. Jesus says, hey, John, baptize me. He says, no, Jesus, that's crazy. You baptize me. <laughs> Jesus calls the trump card. Hey, I'm God. I, I make the rules. Do it my way. And so John baptizes him. He's baptized, and when he's lifted out of the water, I wonder if being cousins, there was a little history, he held him down a little extra, I don't know. Anyway, when he lifted him out of the water, however long he was under, the sky opens up, and I don't know if this means the clouds just kind of parted, or somehow you could see through billions of light years of, of, of space or what, but the clouds open up, it says the Spirit of God descended like a dove. Do you ever notice that's like a dove? I wonder if it was a dove or if it just looked like a dove. I don't know. The spirit descended like a dove and he heard a voice. He heard a voice. I don't know that everybody else did. It seems to be kind of a private moment for him. And he hears his father's voice. And his father says, this is my son, my beloved, the one I love. I'm really pleased with him. And then the spirit... The one that showed up like a dove leads him into the desert. That's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It says the Spirit, this is the same one that descended like a dove, led Jesus into the desert to be tempted there by the devil. I don't really like to think of the Spirit as leading us into temptation or leading us into a place where we'll be tempted. But he does that. He leads him into the desert to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat anything and he doesn't drink anything. And he becomes very hungry. During that time, sorry, I chuckle. I said this before. The biggest understatement in scripture. He didn't eat for 40 days and he was very hungry. There's got to be a better word than very hungry, right? 40 days. During that... During that time, the devil came and said to, said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. I mean, you are kind of hungry. It's been 40 days. But Jesus told him, No, Scriptures say people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, if you were here last week, you heard or saw the video where Kevin Myers kind of teaches on this idea of, of the temptation of our appetites and whether or not we're going to live by our appetites or we're going to live by the truth. Do we submit our appetites to truth or truth to our appetites? Are we driven by our desires or are we driven by God's ways? I'm not going to reteach that. You can go online. It's on the podcast. But then we continue. It says, the devil took him next to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, if you are who you think you are, jump off. If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, here's the devil quoting scripture to Jesus. He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, 
You must not test the Lord your God. See, what's happening here is the, the enemy, the devil, is, is, is asking Jesus, inviting Jesus, tempting Jesus to stage a miracle for the approval of the crowd. See, the holy city is an important place. We may not kind of understand it fully from 2019, but Jerusalem was the city of King David. And they believed that one day an heir of David would come and be a new king that would set them free. Set them free from the Roman Empire. Set them free from Roman oppression. That they would finally be free when this new king, this Messiah showed up. And so to show up in the holy city is a big deal. And then to show up not just in the holy city, but on the temple in the holy city. The place where God interacts with humanity. The place where the divine and the natural intersect. Where, where things get kind of thin between worlds. And he takes him to the highest point. We don't know whether this was the corner that overlooked the Kidron Valley. Some 450 feet above the ground. Makes a good splat when you jump. Or whether it was... The other corner that overlooked the square. Either way, he's, he's said, just jump. Jump. Everyone will know who you are. Everyone will believe in who you are. Everyone will applaud who you are. You'll be able to accomplish your mission so much faster. You'll be able... To, to gain the approval of people. And none of this stuff where the, the Pharisees question you and the Sanhedrin try to kill you. None of this stuff of this, this life. You can just go right, skip the cross. Get everybody's applause and approval. Quick, easy. And he holds this lure in front of Jesus of the crowd's acceptance, approval, and applause. It was a good lure then, it's a good lure now. If you've been around for a while, you know I like to fish. I usually use lures and not live bait. A good lure is meant to look just enough like the real thing to create a reaction strike. You won't want the fish to have time to notice anything about it. You want instinct to trigger and they react and strike and you've got them halfway to the boat and to the frying pan before they know what's happened. Satan likes those kind of lures too. If he can get us to react and yank us, and he's got us flopping around wondering what happened, how we ended up here before we even know, realize what we did. Right? We set out the day and we're going we're gonna to eat right. It's going to be good. And then by one o'clock... Holy cow, where'd this cheeseburger in front of me come from? I didn't intend to do this. I ordered a salad. <laughs> right? Maybe it's that. Maybe it's, you know, today I'm not going to yell at anyone. We haven't even left the house before we failed that one. <laughs> right? God, I'm going to spend time with you, but the alarm messed up. I hit snooze 14 times. We'll get to the gym, whatever it is, right? How did we end up here? How did I end up saying that? How did I end up doing that? Wake up and can't remember the day before, the night before. It's a lure meant to just get our attention, 
cause us to act before we know what's happened. We're stuck, hooked. The lure of the acceptance and the approval and the applause of people was a good lure then, and it's a good lure now. I mean, it is a good lure because it looks real, right? We are born with this natural desire to belong. And that's what it looks like. And that's what it feels like, right? And, and it's especially effective if maybe from an early age we didn't hear well done from, from mom or dad. We didn't hear I believe in you. I didn't hear I love you. We go looking for it. We spend our childhood years looking for it from, from teachers or from friends or from anywhere. Teenage years, from some guy or some girl, from someone, some coach. Our 20s, we're out there. We're looking to prove ourselves that somebody will notice us. Someone will appreciate. Someone will applaud and say, good job. You're pretty great at that. And we can live driven to find that simple word of approval. It's a good lure. It's a really, really good lure that we're all at least occasionally susceptible to because it does. It, it plays on that natural desire and need for belonging, our craving for the approval of others. The trouble is that it's not harmless, it is a lure, there is a hook. And in that search for the approval and those efforts to gain the applause of others, we lose ourselves. We lose our integrity. We lose our identity. We lose our beliefs. We lose our own opinions, our abilities to think for ourselves. We go chasing, chasing, chasing. And sometimes it's the crowd. Sometimes it's a group of people. Sometimes it's just one person. We're willing to do anything to make sure they don't leave us too. And it's a game that's easy to play, right? It's a game that's really, truly pretty easy to play. We all have figured out that we can go home today, hop on social media. We don't have to go home, do it right now. We can make some post on social media, they'll get 20, 30 likes like that, and suddenly we feel a little better about ourselves. Found our people. We belong to these people. Right? We get it. We get it. If you're a Republican, you make some post about a wall and you're right there. You're a Democrat, you make, you know, some post about minimum wage or whatever and, and you're in, right? It's just, there's this sense we know how to get that feeling and play that game. If we like what the crowd likes, if we approve what the, the, the crowd approves of, if we applaud what the crowd applauds, then they'll applaud us. And we feel connected. We feel belong. Honestly, the church has gotten really good at it. Because what, what people figured out is that when we're craving that approval, that applause, that acceptance, we become pretty susceptible, especially to manipulation. We're easily manipulated by those who are willing to withhold their approval and acceptance. And too often the churches play these games, right? Like if you'll, if you'll believe what we believe and you'll act the way we act and think the way we think, then you can be in with us. 
And if somehow, some way you fail or you don't or you don't live up to it, now we're going to push you out in an effort to manipulate you to get it all back together so you can get back in. And then there's the in and there's the out. And if you're in, then you can convince somebody else to do this, 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 and this, so they can be in. And we make that religion. That's religion. That's not Jesus. Jesus kind of eliminates all those games that the Pharisees played and invites us into this relationship that's deeper and truer and begins somewhere else. The devil tried to lie to Jesus. Like he tries to lie to us and tell us that the applause and the approval of others is something worth living for. Right? Jesus recognized that it would do something in him, that, the, the, that the, mean, the ends didn't justify the means, that the means would somehow distort the end. He recognized that where we're longing for applause is often where we are most susceptible to temptation or manipulation. And I wonder sometimes, What is it that I hope people would clap about? Alicia Britt Scholle in her book Anonymous, and we still have copies out there if it's something you're interested in. She asked this question. What do you wish others would clap about? What could they affirm in you that would lead you to take a deep breath, sigh and say, finally. I've been waiting to hear that for a long time. Perhaps it's, it's your contribution to the family. If just someone would say, what would we do without you? Maybe it's accomplishments in the workplace. You're, you're just dying for someone to say, you're the hardest worker I know. This place would fall apart if you didn't show up. Maybe it's your character. You're just waiting for someone to say that just, you're such an example of what we should all be like. Maybe it's the material possessions. Like, you have the coolest stuff. I love that truck, that guitar, that boat, whatever it is, jewelry. Yes, there's a, there's a credit card commercial out right now. Sorry, this is, this is not in the quote. There's this credit card commercial right now about points, getting points to get more stuff. And there's four women sitting around having brunch because in commercials, all women have brunch. And they're, they're sitting around, they're talking. This one woman's going on and on about all her credit card points and the jewelry she's been buying, and the stuff she's been buying. And across the table is there's a woman just daydreaming, and just, just glazed over daydreaming. And just all of a sudden, out of the blue, she's I want nice stuff! And everybody turns and looks at her and doesn't know what's going on. Right? Sometimes we're just wishing someone would say that to us. Maybe it's the, the way you manage money. If someone just notice, just... Man, I, I really admire your wisdom when it comes to money. Could you help me? Or, or maybe sometimes just somebody would notice the effort we put into how we look. Like, you don't seem to age at all. How do you stay in such good shape? Or whatever it is. Or maybe it's our intelligence. Like, right? I wish I had your mind. I wish I could think and, like, like you do. You're so smart. It's just surviving. So amazed by how far you've come. I just wish someone would notice. What are you waiting on someone to notice? 
This, this is where Alicia gets it dead on. I love this. She says, wait no more. Someone is clapping. Wildly, in fact. Your father in heaven is clapping so wildly. It'd make the most enthusiastic soccer mom look like a still painting. It's a genius line. So good. So good. But you know... That's not the story I grew up hearing in church. Now, it may uh, hear what I said. It's not this, I didn't say that's the story I wasn't told. I'm not sure what I was told, but what I heard growing up in church was, you suck, you're broken, and there's nothing you could ever do to get God's attention, applause, or approval. You're broken. You're messed up. In fact, the whole world's messed up, and God hates it all. Right? That's kind of what I heard. I grew up hearing this, and I, and I, and I found myself driven to, by, by what you might call perfectionism. A prideful perfectionism. Driven to get it all right in hopes that someone would notice and I would be seen as okay. Not so broken. Well, if I get everything right, if all the, the grades are right and I do well in the things I take on and, and I can do whatever I set my mind to and I fix whatever I take on, then, then I'll get approved of and, and someone will like me and maybe I won't be seen as broken. Maybe God would even approve one day. Maybe one day God would applaud and I lived driven by this fear and self-hatred and perfectionism to prove myself, driven for the, the applause and the approval of others, the acceptance that maybe someone would like me, and I, and I didn't even realize it. I didn't realize what was happening in that moment, how driven I was just to hear someone say, well done. How, how driven I was, I would have done anything for, the, for my ex-wife not to leave. You know, I had no power over that. For friends not to, to turn their back. For, for churches not to kick you out. Like, living just, if I'm good enough, then this won't happen. I'll, I'll be approved, I'll be accepted, I'll be included. Maybe God would even applaud and yet the story of Scripture, and, 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 and it's so quiet that it can be hard to hear, is like Jesus, before He taught anyone, before He did a single miracle, before anybody knew there was anything special about Him, His Father was whispering, this is my beloved one. I'm so proud of Him. And before we do a thing, before we can do a thing. Jesus says that while we were, we were lost in our own ways, doing whatever we want, with strangers to God, He loved us. He loved you. And so regardless of your background, regardless of your story, the Father says, I have a place for you in my house. You're mine. In fact, there's a whole parable where, where Jesus teaches that he sent his servants out to go to the streets to get the good and the bad and bring them all in. And whoever would put on the new clothes, whoever would receive that new life, stayed for an eternal party. <laughs> Not like an eternal worship service where you guys sing forever. 
that there's that one song about like well, a million years of singing, and I think, oh no, please not. I mean, I, I love to sing a little. Nobody else loves when I sing a little, but there is this embrace by God that comes before anything else. And the beginning of the story of Jesus is God so loved the world. Not the world was so screwed up. Not you were broken. The beginning of the story is God loves you. He applauds you. He believes in you and what he created you to become. He's placed seeds of strength in you. The problem is, it's not until we end up in obscurity that we can hear his applause. This is a huge temptation for me daily. Maybe you can get it. Maybe you took an extra five minutes in the closet to figure out what you were going to wear today to church. Because somebody might think something. Maybe not. That's probably not you. You wear whatever you want. I mean, just cover up, but wear whatever you want. And it wasn't until I utterly failed, kicked out, no ability to fix anything. It wasn't until there was no one left saying, good job, well done. Until there was nobody else singing praises or, or, or talking about expectation or what you could accomplish. There was nobody else saying anything, could I finally hear the applause and the whisper of my Father in heaven? It wasn't until I found myself in obscurity, hidden away, not able to do anything to get my name or to get any praise, that I could hear his voice. We see Jesus. He enters into this hinge moment. And he has this superhero-like strength of immunity to the applause of the crowd. Immunity. Imagine if you were immune to the applause of the crowd. Imagine if you could, you could live out of a sense of security and identity that it didn't matter whether there was approval from anyone else. Didn't matter if anyone else ever applauded again because your father applauds for you every day. Imagine being able to live out of that place. How is it that he did that? So when we, when we look at, when we look at the, the stories, we've said that there are kind of three places of strength that grew in him. The strength to detect a lie, right? the strength to stand on truth. And the strength to overcome the temptation. And I think that if we just layer that over this second temptation, we'll see some things that are so important. The first, he detected a lie in that lure. He saw something in it that let him know that it was fake. Right? The, the enemy tried to tell him, look, it doesn't matter how you get there. Just get there. Tried to tell him that it's, a worthwhile investment to gain the approval and applause of the people around you. That it's worth being a motivating factor for you. And Jesus detected something in that. 
that it's not a harmless pursuit. He realized that there is something connected to the pursuit of someone's applause and approval. What's always connected to approval is allegiance. Allegiance. You see, whomever's approval you seek is the person you'll give your allegiance to. Let me give you an example. I coach a full basketball team, 6th through 8th graders. Great kids. We come to practice. We work hard. They listen. They do what I ask them to do, even when it's run until you want to puke. Like, they do the things we ask them to do. They're ready. They're ready for the game. They're listening. They know the game plan. They get out on the court. They start to execute. And then on the other side of the court, mom or dad yells to their little boy, do this. Right? Do you know what that little boy does? Whatever mom just yelled. Mom doesn't know a lick about basketball, but they're doing it. Right? They shoot a shot, miss or make. Do you know where they look? They don't look at me. They look at mom and dad. They throw a turnover. They look at mom or dad. Right? Do you know why they look at mom or dad? Because that's whose approval they want. So that's who they're loyal to. That's who they'll listen to. And when we're looking for the crowd's approval, we'll be loyal to the crowd. Whatever they want. Whatever they ask. Even if it pushes us beyond something we believe is right or wrong. Just to be included. Here's where the rub happens for those who who claim to follow Jesus. Right? The core of being a Christian, according to the book of Acts, is to proclaim Jesus is Lord. Which is to say, I'm loyal to Jesus. Right? So we proclaim, I'm loyal to Jesus, but then we live for the crowd's approval. And it doesn't work. And we wonder why we struggle to really be loyal to Jesus when we're seeking the crowd's approval. It's because our allegiance always follows our approval, seeking. And Jesus understood this. And he realized that the only approval he ever needed was from his father. The only approval he ever needed was God's. And so it didn't matter what he was tempted to do. It didn't matter what anybody else asked him to do. He was going to do what his father asked him to do. We see this throughout his ministry. There are other times. There's once his family, right? He's sitting down in a house teaching. And his mom and brothers come and say, hey, somebody go in and get Jesus and tell him to come out. Tell him his mom is out here. His mama's out here. He better get out here, right? So they come into the message. Jesus says, nope. The ones sitting here, the ones who do what my father asked, that's my mom, that's my brothers, that's my sisters. I'm doing what I need to be doing. Can you imagine the scolding look from Mary he must have gotten when he finally walked out of the house? She's waiting. His brothers are hiding. They're not going to help him. There was another time, like, he was being rushed. Look, you need to go to Judea. You need to get this thing moving, this rebellion. We got to get against Rome. We got to do this. It's like, look, it's not my father's time. Not rushed at all. He was able to stay to what he knew he was supposed to be doing. Right? 
because he sought only his father's approval. And he recognized the lie. He recognized the lie. And he stood on what was true. See, while he was obscure, while no one knew his name, he, he heard his father's voice. He heard his father's applause. And he learned that his father was faithful. He learned that his father was faithful. That his father could be trusted. That his father had his best interests at heart. And that if he would listen and follow in his father's ways, that the best life possible would emerge for him. He stood on this truth, not only on the truth of who his father was, but on the truth of who he was. He had settled the issue of who he was so that his identity and his value were not dependent on anybody else's approval or applause. He didn't need anyone else to say, well done, for him to feel like he was doing a good job. He didn't need anyone else to applause for him to feel a sense of confidence or security in what he was doing. He had already settled the issue that he was God's son, just like you are God's son or daughter. He belonged to the Father. The Father loved Him. The Father believed in Him. The Father was with Him. And His identity was rooted in this eternal significance and value to His Father. Not in His value to anybody else. So it didn't matter what He produced or taught or made happen. What mattered is who His Father said He was. And when He lived out of that, He was immune to the lure Of the applause of the crowd. He wasn't tempted to live for someone's approval. He wasn't worried when some disciples walked away from him. He knew who he was and what he was supposed to be doing. And he trusted the rest to God. And some of us need to realize who we are. And begin to stand on the truth that God's ways will lead to the best possible life. Some of us, some of us struggle here because we hear the lies, right? You're not enough. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. Good enough, smart enough, strong enough. You'll never be enough. You can never get there. Or we hear the lie, you know they'll leave you. Right? You, you know they'll leave you. You know they don't really care. You know you have to do this, right? We hear those lies. They're, they come along with the lure. They're like the, the shiny colors and the, the fake eyes that we put on that fishing lure. They're the lies that try to trick us into to falling for the, the lure. And they bombard us at the same time that it's hanging right there in front of us. And we believe it and we act on it and we let it motivate us and determine our direction. And it happens to all of us from time to time. Some of us more often. And our lives are motivated by these lies. We need to begin to recognize them as lies. Recognize that that's not where fulfillment comes from. That's not where life comes from. That that this thing that is very natural is not needful. Do you hear that? There's a natural desire for applause from people, but it's not a needful thing. And Jesus recognized the difference, and he knew that he needed 
the Father's applause. Because look, people's applause is like a short spoon in a tall tea glass. It just doesn't quite get to the bottom and stir what really needs to be stirred. <laughs> nice southern. Actually, it's probably not a good southern. It's more a northern one, right? Because nobody's stirring tea in the south. We've already got it stirred. It's already sweet. There's only one kind you can get in the south. Only the Father's applause can satisfy that deep longing within us. And Jesus understood that he had to stand on who he was and who the Father said he was. And that gave him the ability to overcome the temptation. Right? There's this, this, um, this genius moment in Jesus. So, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, right, just a few, the next chapter, he starts teaching. And over and over again, he starts saying things like, if you, if you hate your brother, it's, it's the same as killing them. Now, not, he doesn't mean literally the same, it's hyperbole, right? So, if you, if you think about having sex with that person that's not, you're not married to, it's the same as, as adultery, Connecting thoughts to action. And we see in Jesus the ability to overcome temptation by having a disciplined imagination. A disciplined imagination. See, there's there's nothing wrong with imagining the future and wanting to build a better life for yourself or your family. But the problem comes when we mentally self-medicate through self-aggrandizing daydreams. Alicia, Alicia Britt Scholle puts it this way. Gives some examples. Right? Consider a new parent up to their elbows in diapers every day. And they daydream about how quiet it would be. And how much less crap would be around them if they had just remained single or didn't have kids. And they wake up somehow... Less patient with their children and more resentful toward their spouse. Imagine the woman who, who, who daydreams about Prince Charming sweeping them off their feet. And somehow they wake up each day and they roll over and their husband looks more and more like a frog. <laughs> the young professional, right, who daydreams about this corporate battle for their services with pay scales escalating and benefits going up and up. And they wake up with, with no contentment or motivation in the job that they already have. The pastor, this is not her example, the other three were, this one's mine, the pastor who daydreams about large congregations and big buildings and speaking at conferences with influence and wakes up unappreciative of the wonderful place that he's been given and the people that he gets to love and serve and work alongside. It's a temptation for all of us. Paul instructs us. He instructs us in 2 Corinthians 10.5, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In 1903, a man named James Allen wrote a book, As a Man Thinketh, and in it he writes, 
Every action and feeling is preceded by a thought. Every action and feeling is preceded by a thought. We go where our thoughts take us. It's not a closed environment. It's a controlling environment, our minds. It determines our direction, our feelings, our perceptions. And we can, we can kind of mentally self-medicate, wishing things were not as they were. Or we can embrace the situation we've been given and do everything we're called to do in that situation and trust in God's timing to promote us to what he has for us next. So that's what Jesus did. He trusted in the Father's timing. For 30 years, he learned to trust in the Father's timing. Can you imagine, like, by the time he was probably 20, he must have been, I mean, in their culture, you were a man at 12, right? So certainly by 20, he must have been waking up every day. Okay, Father's today the day? We have to go do this miracle thing? Today the day? Nope. Come on. Nope, not today. Every day until he was 30. 30. We meet college students every day, like 22. Why am I not making a difference in the world? You're 22. Give us some time. <laughs> I'll, I'll be 40 this year, and I, I wonder, why is this like this? <laughs> some of you with a little more gray than me feel like it too, right? It's part of the journey, learning to trust in the Father's timing, to give everything we've got to what he's given us. And trust that in his time, he'll move us from obscurity to the public eye. He'll, he'll take advantage of the gifts he's put in us. But they start out as seeds that have to grow. And they grow underground where no one can see them. We have to be patient and trust in his timing. So what motivates you? Like in the day-to-day decisions, what you'll say, what you'll think about, what you'll do, where you'll go, what motivates you that no one else can see? What fears lurk beneath the surface, whispering their lies? There's one last beautiful thought in this passage. Jesus didn't sin. He was tempted, and it was a very real temptation. He was fully human, but he didn't sin. You and I don't have to sin. That's crazy. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Write down the reference. The temptations in your life, even the temptation for the applause, to live for the applause, approval, acceptance of others, the temptations in your life are no different than what others experience. Here's the key to it all, the linchpin, and God is faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. Now, just a little side note, because I get annoyed with um, Christian cliches. This verse doesn't say God will never give you anything you can't handle, right? God intentionally gives you more than you can handle, so you learn to depend on him. 
What he's saying is he'll not allow you to be tempted without giving you a way out so you don't have to sin. That's what he is saying here. And that's amazing. In itself, like, that is this powerful, like, aha moment for us to realize that the same spirit that descended like a dove on Jesus and led him into the desert and and gave him the strength to withstand the temptation, that same spirit is the spirit that he gives us at Pentecost. And so not only does he live and die on that cross and be raised back to life so that we can be set free from the sins of our past, be forgiven for the sins of our past, but he gives us his spirit so that we can live free from sin today. Chances are you'll screw up from time to time. But we don't have to. When I go out from this place tomorrow and I am tempted to make decisions based on how you'll feel about them, I don't have to listen to those voices. When when I'm tempted, right, to think that if I don't do a certain thing, that, that they'll leave or they'll betray or they don't really like me. I don't have to believe the lies. I don't have to let that motivate me. I can live according to God's ways and according to God's calling and God's direction with the conviction that it'll lead to the best life. And whether other people applaud or boo or walk off doesn't determine how I see myself and how I'm valued. Because Jesus said that when the Son, when He sets you free, you're really free. Really free. It's His gift. His invitation. We live in it. See, there's this very different reality from having to live to prove yourself. Live to earn God's applause. Learn to living to get His acceptance and realizing it's already been given to you. You just have to live out of it. You have to live as if it's true. It's this this thing we call faith. This trust in what I can't see and I'm not even sure I believe. I think that there's a... Sometimes we have this misunderstanding about Christianity that everything can be certain. All it takes is to read a little bit of the Bible and realize how much uncertainty there really is. And that's where trust comes in. I can't explain it. I don't know how all it works. He says it's true. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to live as if he's applauding. I'm going to live as if I'm valued regardless of what I produce or don't produce. I'm going to live as if I am accepted by him. I'm going to live as if there is a place in his house for me. And I'm going to let that shape how I live. I'm going to live for his applause and approval and not for that of those around me. And I'm going to let that guide me into the best possible life. The life I was created to live. It's an invitation to be forgiven and set free. Let's pray. So I want to invite you. Like, not going to do anything weird. Just You talk to God in your own heart and mind. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or move or anything like that. Just, you just talk to him. Just say, God, if there's any motivation in me that drives me to live for other people's applause or approval, would you show it to me? There are lies that I have let shape me Would you show them to me? Would you help me to see the Lord? Just ask him to give you a new sense of trust. A new strength to detect the lie, to stand on what's true. 
Maybe it's a disciplined imagination that you need. Just tell him. Maybe you need a renewed sense of awareness that his spirit is in you. That you are stronger than you realize because his seeds of strength are there. Maybe you're in one of those obscure seasons. You just need to thank him for for it. And realize how sacred it is. And ask him to build that strength in you during this time for whatever's ahead. Father... We realize as we look out on this year, there are so many unpredictable things that we're just not going to have the strength to face. But we believe that you've put the seeds of strength in us. And if we'll begin to let you grow them in us, even now, as we begin to live for your approval and your applause, really not for it, but out of it, because you've already given it, that we can be forgiven and free. Would you give us courage in those moments of temptation to pause and look Would you help us, would you help me, to live free of this? It just, it it shows up so often and so easily. Set us free, we pray. And may we live into the strength you have us for all the things you have for us this year. We believe that you are faithful. We believe that you are good. We believe that there are good things that you have for us in this year. We also believe that you've put in us the ability to enjoy them or screw them up. So would you begin to forge in us a strength to set us up for what's next. Even in these obscure moments and obscure seasons when we feel hidden and unnoticed, maybe alone and unloved, that you see us, you know us, you're applauding and inviting us to walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was a joy to be with you this morning. Enjoy a homemade cookie, uh, a little bit of sunshine and cooling temperatures today. And uh, we'll see you next week as we wrap up this series on obscurity. Have a great day.